Good morning, everybody. Let me just pray um, as we um, pour, uh, jump into God's words and um, I just pray for our time um, this morning. Um, Father, uh, thank you that we um, get to hear from your word. Thank you that you speak to us, that, in your, uh, that through your spirit, uh, you are able to change us. And so I pray that this morning would be a time that we are able to, to, to listen and to hear, to able to have your spirit minister, uh, minister to us. And Lord, I do just pray that it would just be a sweet time for us. Um, Lord, let your word change us. Um, Lord, we pray that anything that I say that is not from you, Lord, let it just disappear and not be heard. But whatever it is, Lord, we, we, I pray that it would fall on ears that are willing to hear and hearts that are willing to change. Amen. Well, Wimbledon High School for Girls introduced a failure week in 2017. And the plan was to teach pupils to embrace risk build resilience, and learn from their mistakes. The emphasis was on the value of having a go rather than playing it safe and perhaps achieving less. The headmistress is um, Heather Hansbury, and she said that she had to place a great emphasis on developing resilience and robustness amongst the girls and wanted to show that it's completely acceptable and completely normal not to su succeed in life at times. Miss Hansbury's pupils are actually girls that achieve the highest in the country and she says, and this is a quote from her, the girls need to learn how to fail well and how to get over it and cope with it. You see, fear of failing can be really crippling and stop the girls doing things they really want to do. We want them to be brave, to have courage in the classroom, as she, is what she added. And although now this has been imitated by a number of schools across the country, at the time it was ridiculed. It was ridiculed because failure in our country is not acceptable. In fact, failure in this country and in our culture it is actually it's a bad thing, isn't it? It can define us and people are thought of badly for when they fail. And in fact, it actually crushes us. Failure is something that can crush us as individuals and, and even ruin our lives. But when I'm talking about failure, I just want to be clear, I'm talking about two, there are two types of failure. Firstly, there is a lack of success. That's like I studied for the exam, um, but I got an F on the test. Or failing to achieve targets or achieving your goals at work. Failing to get that promotion that you desperately wanted. You see, this failing, failure doesn't necessarily mean sinful. And when I talk about being sinful, I mean acting or behaving in a way that does not conform to God's commands or his character. It is not sinful to fail a test, is it? It's not sinful to not meet, meet your targets at work. But there is also a second type of failure, which is a moral failure. A moral failure is, is thinking about, I, I was alone on a business trip and I assumed that I could resist the temptation, but I just turned on that TV channel and I watched something I shouldn't have done. Or it could be uh, the accountant that steals from their client. The teacher that has an indiscretion with their student, the pastor that abuses his position of authority. These are sinful actions. These are things that are not conforming to God's character or commands. You see, the Bible describes failure as falling short of the glory of God, falling short of what God expects and desires for us. And so for Christians, failure is actually part and parcel of our lives. In fact, we actually have a failure week every single week of our lives. But this is why 
Jesus came. He came for failures like you and me. So failure of both kinds, whether it's a lack of success or whether it's a moral failure, doesn't need to define us, doesn't need to be final. See, if you know Jesus, it doesn't define us because our sins of the past, our sins of the present and the sins of our futures are completely gone and forgiven. If we don't hit the grade at work or at college or university in our exams, he still loves us just as much as whether we succeed or whether we fail in that. You see, the gospel of Jesus is not based on our performance. But of course, there are consequences sometimes for failure, aren't there? The, that doesn't necessarily, because it doesn't necessarily mean that the accountant is going to get another job in finance, does it? Or the teacher going to get another job in a school? Or the pastor to be put in charge of another congregation? Or if you fail to get that, to hit your targets in your job, being able to get that promotion that you wanted and the pay rise? But in Christ, the truth is, for you and me, we don't need to let failure and problems of the past determine the potential of the present. We don't need to let the failures and the problems of the past determine the potential of of the present or the future. But maybe, maybe today the reality feels so much different. Because we know that that, that failures shouldn't necessarily define us, but it's hard when we feel like a failure each and every single day. Maybe today you're sitting there at the moment and you just feel like an utter failure. Failure hasn't brought you the resilience to succeed, but maybe you're failing to meet the standard as a husband, as a wife, as a friend. Maybe you're failing to meet the standard as a worker in your workplace. And you just feel like you're not good enough. Maybe you feel crushed by an exam result that you've had recently and you can't get to the place that you want to go. Maybe there's some moral failure that's gone on in your past or even in the present at the moment that that is just weighing you down and pulling you down and you feel stuck. Thinking, how can God use me in your how can God use me in his kingdom? I wouldn't. I'm a perpetual failure. But I really wanted to encourage us today. I want to encourage us that it's only the gospel that has the power to impact our hearts and minds and sturdy us up, even in the reality that we still fail. I'll say that again. It is only the gospel that has the power to impact our hearts and minds and sturdy us, that's keep us upright, even in reality that we still fail. It's only with the gospel that we can fail well so that failure doesn't crush us. And so today, I want us to look at the life of John Mark. He is one who failed and his way back looked very, very difficult from that failure. And I also want us to be encouraged by him not letting the past or his current failures, that current reality that he still fails, um, define him. He didn't let it define him. In fact, he was used to do amazing things in God's kingdom. So I pray for our time this morning that it would just be an encouragement to us. Failure does not have to define us. So who was John Mark and how did he fail? Well, John Mark is also known as Mark the Evangelist, the guy that wrote Mark's Gospel. And from an early age, he was a a boy or a man defined by hunger for faith and a battle with fear. And we see this in Mark's Gospel itself. And most scholars agree that that he refers to himself in this Gospel, doesn't name himself, but refers to himself as the young man that as Jesus is arrested um, in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter chops off the ear of the high priest's servant, 
we read in verse 52, uh, chapter 15 of verse 51, 52, it says, And a young man followed him, and with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. I absolutely love this about John Mark. They believe that he was probably about only 11 at the time, a boy at the time, but he had the faith to follow Jesus when Jesus was arrested. His faith puts him in danger and he battles then with fear, doesn't he? A bit like Peter, when Peter follows Jesus at a distance but then um, says that he doesn't know him three times. Here, John Mark follows Jesus and then is about to be arrested and he manages to get away by losing his clothes. Can you empathise with him? I know I certainly can. Um, Can you just remember that hunger when you first came to know Jesus? The hunger that you had to go and tell other people about him, the joy that it brought us. Wanting to go and tell friends, family about Jesus and the change that he's made in our lives. And it was the same for me, but then when it came to it, when it came to telling my friends, I chickened out. I was fearful. I was scared of what they would think. I had the faith, but I battled with fear, like John Mark. And so hopefully we can empathise with him. And then we see that in Acts chapter 12, that we see a young man with a hunger of faith and a battle with fear continues a little bit. In Acts chapter 12, what we see here is um, we see um, that John Mark is still a relative young man, but we find out a little bit about his home life, that he had a Christian heritage. It's his mother Mary in their home that they host, they have a church. And this church is attended by many people, but some people that have been to it are poor and then we see in this passage in Acts chapter 12 that Peter turns up at this church after he's been arrested um, and they think that he's going to be, uh, he's going to be sentenced to death. Um, they're praying, praying and praying and praying in John Mark's home, in his mother's home. Miraculously, Peter is able to, to leave the prison and turns up at the house. The servant girl opens the door and is so shocked that Peter's there that she runs back in and tells him, hey, Peter's here and they don't believe him, but don't believe her. But John Mark has a Christian heritage. And then we also see in, um, later on in the chapter, in chapter 12, verse 25, that John Mark must have grown in his faith. Because what we read is this, Barnabas and Saul, that's Paul, returned from Jerusalem when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Get this, John Mark is, has, uh, becomes part of the first missionary journey that Paul takes with Barnabas. Isn't that amazing? A young man seemingly has overcome his fear with faith. He's made it, he's a career missionary now, and they head out on the world's first missionary journey. But then what happens? We see something goes wrong. Something goes wrong. In chapter 13, they embark on Paul's first ministry journey. That's a three-year journey that they take around um, around, um, the Mediterranean Asia Minor. And they sail to Cyprus in AD 46, where they face some opposition. And we read in verse 13 that John Mark ends up leaving them at this point. That's the first place they'd made it to. In verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylina. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Poseidon. See, we're not told exactly what happened. We don't know exactly what happened with John Mark, why he left, why there was a split. But 
scholars have discussed that they think he was homesick. That the opposition that had happened in Cyprus, that they felt that it scared him and he felt homesick and he left and went and fled back to Jerusalem. Well, whatever it was that was happening, he didn't follow through what he said he would. He was a failure. He let down Paul, he let down Barnabas. He had the shortest missionary career you can absolutely imagine. But get this, could you imagine being John Mark and having to head home to to the church that's in your house, feeding back on what's happened? Can you imagine that testimony slot? I'm sure they had a testimony slot each week like we do. Can you imagine John Mark standing up and saying, well, thank you so much for your support, guys. Thank you for paying for me to go on this trip. Cyprus is a beautiful place. If you ever get a chance, you should go. But I got really scared and I came back. I'm really sorry. I've let down Paul and I've let down Barnabas. You see, this isn't just a little failure. This is an epic, in front of everybody, in front of the whole church, failure. How crushing that would be for a young man. And of course, Paul and Barnabas carry on on their missionary journey over the next few years, planting churches, seeing thousands of people come to faith. Then in Acts chapter 15, the bit that we read at the start um, is um, in Acts chapter 15, they, they want to go back. No, long, no sooner have they got back from their, their first missionary journey, they want to go out again and visit the churches to encourage them. And we read this, as we read earlier. It says, and, someday, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. And let's see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them, uh, best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And then it says, and there arose a sharp disagreement. So that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. Interestingly, back to the place that they that he had fled from. But Paul chose Silas and departed having been commanded by the brothers to the, grace, um, to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. I feel sorry for John Mark here. Can you imagine uh, the Apostle Paul, the leading apostle, famous Paul, most respected greatest evangelist in the world, saying categorically, you are not coming with me. I do not endorse you. I do not support you. Don't waste your funds on giving him money to come with us. He cannot be trusted. Look what happened last time. I'm not going to take a risk on him. But then there's Barnabas's reaction. Maybe it's for family reasons because he's his cousin. But also I think he's living up to his name as Barnabas means the son of encouragement. He says, no, I'm sticking with my cousin. Come on, Paul. A few years has passed. He's changed. Give him a chance. He's done a lot of growing up since he failed. What a failure John Mark would have felt. His reputation as a deserter had stuck with him and he doesn't go with Paul. He is at the heart of a split between Paul and Barnabas. What a failure. Then let's fast forward 10 years, approximately 10 years, around about AD 64. And we read this in Peter's first letter. He says in chapter 5, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends, your, uh, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. 
It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Peter refers to John Mark as his son. That's a term used when you've disciple, either disciple someone to the Lord or when you are discipling someone in their faith. Peter thinks so fondly of John Mark that he refers to him as, as my son. And in fact, what we, what we find out from other um, out, um, uh, documents from outside of Scripture are that in AD 61, Mark records, his first go- uh, records the first gospel, the earliest of the, the, the gospels that we have, which is, uh, scholars believe is Peter's account of Jesus' experiences in life. That, he, that Mark writes with Peter. Isn't that amazing? A failure going to write, ends up writing the first gospel that we have. And then get this, even in, then in AD 65, um, years, uh, uh, years after Paul has said, no, you're not coming with me, he writes um, this letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful for me, to me for, um, for ministry. What a turnaround in events for John Mark. The two leading apostles value him so greatly from useless to useful See, God is using ordinary people to do amazing things in his kingdom. A failure like John Mark ends up doing amazing things in his kingdom. So what had happened to John Mark in those interceding years, in those 10 years or so? How did he deal with those massive epic failures and not let that present reality of failing define him? Well, I think he'd had a right understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, he could have spent those years feeling sorry for himself and wallowing in his failure, or he could let the gospel impact his heart and mind to sturdy him up in the present reality that he still fails, that he can still be useful in the kingdom of God. And I just want us to to look and be encouraged by four ways in which I believe that we should and need to take hold and remind ourselves um, of, of um, and remind ourselves of these things when we feel crushed by failure. Just four things that the gospel um, uh, tells us who we are um, and how we can deal with failure when we, when we have a lack of success or when we have a moral failure. So firstly, the gospel changes how you see yourself. The gospel changes how you see yourself. Failure shouldn't crush us. And the reason it shouldn't crush us is because Christ has already saved us from our biggest failure. You are a failure. I am a failure. I'm sorry to say it, but you and I are all failures. But the gospel frees us from that feeling. It it says that you are a failure, but you are loved more than you can ever imagine. Christ has passed every test on our behalf, a test that we couldn't pass, so that any past, present or future failure doesn't need to define us. This is the hope that we have in the midst of our failures and our most epic of failures. You see, the good news of Jesus is not based on our performance, but on his performance. You see, God sees you as perfect in his eyes. The Bible talks about how Jesus stands in our place and we are actually hidden in Christ when we believe in him. 
God looks on us, uh, but looks on Christ. He can't see us because um, he just sees Jesus' perfectness in our place. Whether that is a failure in sin, whether you've fallen short in a moral failure, or whether you're feeling like a failure because you haven't achieved. We've all fallen short, but we are hidden in Christ. That is who we are now. Tim Keller writes, the gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. The gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. And you see, guys, it's from this place, it's from this place that the gospel changes how we see other people as well. It's important. See, often it is the words and the actions of other people that tell people they're a failure, isn't it? It's often what we say and think of other people that actually tell people they're a failure. And can you imagine the stinging words of Paul to John Mark? How John Mark would have felt by those, that criticism. I can't trust you anymore after what happened last time, John Mark. And I expect that we've probably all received crushing and stinging criticism at times, or even condemnation for our failures. Now, I want to be clear here and careful here that Paul wasn't necessarily wrong in what he said to John Mark. See, sometimes our mistakes and our failures do mean there are consequences to it. And so maybe Paul was legitimate in what he said, because sometimes we do need to receive a criticism, don't we, or a challenge, or as the Bible calls it, a rebuke for a failure. But this is different than condemnation. The desire is not to break the person when we rebuke them. We see them just as God sees them as his treasured, most treasured possession. And we help them see that. We help see them, don't be defined by your failure. God sees you as a treasured possession. This is how we fail well and help others fail well. But how easy it is to sit in judgment and condemnation of others. Oh, Dad's not a very good husband, isn't he? Did you hear how he spoke to Nikki last time? Oh, tut, 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 tut. Compared to, Dan, I saw how he spoke to Nikki last week, and I've seen it a couple of times. I think, is there something going on there? Can we just pray about that and bring it to the Lord? Can you imagine that it is, uh, and that's exactly what Barnabas did, wasn't it? That's why it's so encouraging to see the two different approaches. Barnabas um, takes uh, uh, John Mark to one side and says, yes, you've fallen short. You have fallen well short, but God loves you just the same as whether you've made that mistake or not. Don't let it define you. Remember what Jesus has done for you. We've already passed the test, the biggest test of all, without even taking the test. Christ has done it all. So I just want to say praise the Lord for people like Barnabas, those sons of encouragement. And we've all got those people in our lives, haven't we? And let's draw close to them and near to them. And if you are one of those people, draw close to other people and be an encouragement to them as well and help them uh, recognise who they are in Christ. Thirdly, uh, the gospel defends you against the enemy's lies. See, Satan loves us having a false view of who we are in Christ. And he loves throwing accusations at us. He loves saying, you're not good enough. You are not good enough. Imagine him saying, there is no comeback from that epic failure you just did. I know the Bible says you've fallen short of the glory of God, but uh, all have, but that doesn't matter. But you really have fallen short, and I don't think Jesus can forgive you for that. Or you failed that exam. That was the easy exam. You may as well just give up now. 
Why don't you deny Jesus in front of all your friends again and you say you love him? He'll never use you in his kingdom. Should you really have reacted like that to your friends and family? John Mark, you didn't keep your commitment and you ran away. There is no chance you're going to be used by God. You see, he says lies and lies and lies. He just tells us lies after lie. You see, sometimes we actually end up dealing badly with failure. We fail badly. And that is for us to hide ourselves from God. We think God doesn't want us to be close to him, but it's the exact opposite. God wants us to draw near to him in our failures so that he can pour out grace upon grace over us, that free gift of unmerited favour that God gives to those that he knows and loves. You see, sometimes we think our failures stop us from being able to access God. And that is absolute rubbish. The author of Hebrews says, um, we can boldly approach the throne of grace because that is where grace abounds to us. God's grace is given to us in our weakness. He brings us strength in our weakness and he gets all the glory. That's what we've been looking at in 2 Corinthians 12, that verse that we've used in a lot of our sermons this, this, um, this summer. God is saying it is my strength in your weakness that makes you good. Just call out to me in your weakness and my righteousness is enough to cover each and every single failure that you ever have done or will do. So he def- the gospel defends us against the enemy's lies. But also the gospel helps us deal with our guilt and shame. When we fail in a moral way, when we sin against God, we experience guilt. That's a falling short of the standard. But then we also feel shame. That's different than guilt. Shame is how we feel about falling short of that standard. We feel exposed, don't we? We feel worthless and we feel like a failure. And we have a choice. We can either hang on to that and keep it to ourselves or we can give it to God and let him take the guilt and shame away. It says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far our transgressions have been taken from us. But, as it says in 1 John, um, as it says in 1 John, um, chapter 1, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, maybe our feeling of failure comes from an unconfessed, it comes from unconfessed sin. Or comes from an unconfessed feeling of failing in an area, failing that exam and you're taking it on yourselves and thinking that you're rubbish. You see, even confessing that I think that I've been believing the enemy's lies, that I'm not good enough when I know that's not true, come and feel that joyful experience of receiving um, grace upon grace. When we fail in that way again, when we speak badly to our, our, our spouses, when we uh, fail as parents, when we um, don't make the grade in whatever area it is, there is no longer condemnation for us. We come to the throne of grace and receive grace after grace. In our weakness, he is made strong. Be sure, failure will crush us if we don't let the gospel take over our hearts and minds to steady us up. It will crush us with the everyday reality that we fail. But let's fail well. Let's fail well. Let's go to the gospel of Christ. Let's remember that um, of who we are. 
what the gospel tells us of who we are. Let's remember that he takes away our guilt and shame, that he takes away uh, that the lies of Satan no longer have any power over us and we don't need to believe them. So I just want to finish with, if failure is a theme in your life, just a few simple steps to take. Confess openly to the Lord about your failure. Don't hold it inside. Confess openly to him. Accept who you are, even though you are not. We are sinning saints. We are saints. We almost don't believe that, do we? We believe we're sinners. We don't always believe that we're saints, but that's what we are. Hold on to that. Pray to God that your weakness has given him an opportunity, an opportunity for you to rely on his strength. Every failure we have is an opportunity to rely in his strength. And if you feel like you are a failure and you've never opened up and shared with anybody, um, t- today is the day to do it. And that's what I want us to do now as we move into our uh, discussion groups or um, however many there are, spend some time on, on maybe just a couple of these questions, the first two questions. In what areas do you feel like a failure? Is there anything you want to confess openly to the Lord now? And then let's um, encourage each other and give grace to one another. What might you say?